Welcome to the Gather, Grow, Go podcast. I'm Pastor Daniel. I'm Pastor Melissa. And I'm just Kiefer. And today on the podcast, we embark on a new season, a season that is intended in this time of disruption and heartache and pain to take us deeper. We believe that often there is profound power in going deep together to learning new things and exploring new things and finding places of healing along the way. We as a community here deeply believe in the power of the mystic stance and contemplative Christianity, the seeking of being connected to God in a profound and holy way. And if you don't know what mystic Christianity and contemplative stance mean, don't worry, we're going to get there in just a hot second. But we believe that over the next month, we will explore some themes and dive deep together in ways that can bring renewal to your spirit and healing to your soul in this time. So we're so thankful that you're with us on the journey today. And and as we get started, Melissa, what the heck is a mystic? <laughs> I, uh, man, like when I first think of mystics, I think of monks and habits, like which are the like big brown, like sackcloth, you know, that they wear. Okay. And like just like off in a cave by themselves without like they don't want to be interrupted by the world at all, which there's a little bit of truth to that imagery, but there's also so much more depth and beauty to who the mystic actually is. Mm. I, I love that, that you have this holy and beautiful vision of a mystic when we ask you what a mystic is first, because I got to tell you, the first time I encountered the word Christian mystic, I thought, what kind of voodoo stuff have I walked into? It was <laughs> the summer before my first semester of seminary, and I got my book list, and I had this uh-huh. book that was two and a half inches thick on Christian mysticism. Love and it. I turned to my mama, who was a Methodist pastor and who had read that book when she was in seminary, and said, what is this? She's like, ooh, I love the mystic. You'll love them too. And gave me no helpful information. But I think what you provide... Isn't that like exactly... Like I love that like we've now asked... Like you, you've you asked me. You've asked yourself. Kiefer's kind of right. nodding in the background. Oh, I am, yeah. Like there's... Neither of us have actually defined mystic. And I feel like that right. is what happens for so many people. Like you hear mystic. You think like... Witchcraft. Witchcraft, (laughs) weirdness, like outskirts of like Christianity, maybe. Are they Christian? Like that kind of like thing. Um, But you don't actually define mystic. Well, and sometimes it's helpful to go beyond (laughs) ourselves as we seek to find these definitions. And and one of the books that I read in seminary that was really formative and helpful and powerful was by, by Dr. Elaine Heath. And called the mystic way of evangelism. And because so many of us start this conversation with that foundational place of what is this, uh, she provides uh, a really helpful definition within the midst of her book. And she's quoting Evelyn Underhill. She says, mysticism is essentially a movement of the heart seeking to transcend the limitations of the individual standpoint and to surrender itself to ultimate reality. For no personal gain, purely from an instinct of love. Now, that's a lot of big words. (sighs) Um, But it's seeking after God's own heart. Not for your own gain, but from a place of deep love so that we might love the world more fully, I think. If I had to come up with a new revised Daniel version of that definition. (laughs) Um, Hmm. I think it's the ultimate, like mysticism the mystic stance in christianity is one that holds 
no container for grace or God's love. Mm. Mm. Man, probably my first, I'm trying to think of my first encounter with mysticism uh, in like an academic way. Cause I, th- I probably heard the word before, mm-hmm. um, but I think probably Richard Rohr might yeah. okay. maybe have been my, my first kind of, and if you, anybody's, if you've never heard of Richard Rohr, he's, you know, a Catholic, he's a, is it Franciscan? Yep. He's, mm-hmm. he's from the Franciscan kind of order tree. of priests. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's, he's a Catholic priest and, uh, but goes into all these kind of mystic territories as well. And he's written just an insane amount of, uh, words down about, uh, <laughs> mysticism and kind of the universal Christ was his last, uh, book and, and everything. And so that's, I've kind of kept up with his work a little bit, but this book that this whole Elaine Heath book that we're getting ready to talk about is also kind of showed it to me in a more, cause Richard Rohr is a little bit more like, I'm going to talk to you, you know, like if you're out in the real world, but this one was definitely, I felt like I was in seminary when I was reading it. It was very kind of a systematic <laughs> theology is that what, like it's yep. laying it out very academically. So, um, it, it was, it was nice uh, to just kind of get hit with like, Oh, I should be, I felt like I should be taking notes or something as I was reading. Love <clears> it. <throat> I, so with like the mystic way. So I kind of wanted to like name, um, just again for us, why are we talking about the mystics right now? And I think right. my hope for us, and I want to hear y'all's hopes for it as well, is that it has been such a, like, on the edge of American Christianity, not all Christianity, not historical Christianity by any means, but of, like, what I would call, like, Western pop culture Christianity. It is so far on the edge, and I think there's mm. so much beauty that we need from the mystic uh, mystics in our Christian faith tradition in this day and age, because there is so much suffering. Um, and not just, I'm not just talking about COVID or quarantine or um, moving on with life or not moving on with life. Like, right. I'm, I'm talking about all the pain and suffering in this world that perhaps COVID has brought about us noticing better where there is inequality between neighbors and where there is so much pain um, in the midst of that suffering, oppression, right? On and on and on. And it's in, in, in and from that space that mystics speak hope and grace and God's love. And I think we need that more than ever right now. And honestly, I love it because it's really nerdy and we're getting to take everyone like a step deeper in the faith of saying like, we're not just going to stay up here on this little like, you know, intro into like this Bible story or that. Like we're saying like, let's go there. Like we're using the mystic way of evangelism, a seminary book to ground us in all of this. What about y'all? I would agree that it's probably the timing of talking about mysticism right now. Like, I feel like you're talking about in the West, I feel like we might be primed better than ever to understand mysticism Mm -hmm. in a more personal way, because I I think you said you didn't want to limit it this necessarily to like American Christianity or whatever, what, and whatever the difference there is, is like definitely here we get, we're so good at getting caught up kind of in our own systems and our own patterns and schedules and stuff. And what we all just experienced as a as a nation and really as a, as a world, but talking about here, was just this complete shutdown of like our rhythm. And yeah. 
sometimes we don't even realize we're tying you know our rhythms to like this is how the world is supposed to work it's just it's just how it currently works right but the world can work however we want it to work it's just these is this is what we've been doing and then all of a sudden it's gone and you feel like like we in mysticism i feel like it at this point would help us kind of recognize that the base of like the goodness in the world and the and all these other things that are more the root of our it, we we have to turn inward to look at our the core of ourselves and the core of just kind of what's what hasn't stopped in the world yeah just to just to believe that god hasn't stopped because it's like okay the whole mm. economy shut down did did god stop working because we we i mean in the west we do really think a lot about god's work being done through financial means oftentimes mm-hmm. and like through kind of and so with all of that being just totally blown up right now then i think mysticism has a special way of speaking to like let's look inward and look way farther outward at like the universe of what christ is doing you know long term cosmos yes of god's yeah. work yeah well and, and as i reflect on um western christianity y'all both mentioned sort of the place of pop christianity in western culture right now and and it feels like post enlightenment most so really mid 19th century on the vast majority of our faith has been aimed at deep intellectual understanding with deep rigor and getting the beliefs right yeah right so and then right proving knowledge. ourselves right yeah. right it's knowledge driven and grounded um, certainty is a highest value yeah and proving that we're right whoever mm-hmm. we are <laughs> yeah has been a, a foundational part of who we are and I think some of the hurt and the heartache and the division and the suffering in in our midst right now um, is ground in that ethos of certainty and being right and needing to prove that we're right and maybe i'm just living in the backlash right now of two straight weeks of political conventions Mm. where you know the only thing that was in common between the two was the absolute certainty that they were right and that the other people (laughs) were wrong um gosh yeah and, and so but but mysticism and contemplation and sort of the the deep seeking of union with god through reflection and prayer grounds us in a way that seeks to connect our hearts to God, not just our heads. Mm-hmm. And I think that can help transcend some of the the systems and the and the way of being that has gotten us to this place of hurt and harm. Right? Yeah. Um the the ultimate result of mysticism, I think, is this ever increasing capacity for love of God, right? Uh and love of our neighbor. And the proof of it is in the fruit. Right? How do are we loving God well, and are we loving our neighbor well? And so, I I think this is a great time for this kind of conversation, and a great time for us to to seek to to not be conformed to the patterns of the world that surround us, but but transform by renewing. Even if renewing means you know engaging headier stuff than we (laughs) normally do, and embracing uh, words that first make us think, what kind of weird voodoo stuff am I going to be learning about here? Right? It's kind of ironic. Yeah, (laughs) it's so outside of our like normal rhythms for you know what we hear in our kind of Christian realms and spheres of places of influence. So we should probably do some definitions. Contemplation. The contemplative stance is being in the mystery of God. And that being's really important because we are so success-driven, doing-driven, 
value is in what you produce or make or create. And instead, the contemplative stance is the exact opposite of that. It's that I have worth just by being. Um, And I have worth to the God of the cosmos just by being in the mystery of who that God is. You know, I think it begins as a spiritual practice. We've had any number of times over the course of this summer on this podcast, invitations to different types of prayer. And I think each one can be an avenue to contemplation, right? The the most stereotypical ones are the ones uh, of silence and meditation and in those spaces where there is less of us so there can be more of God, right? Those kind of places of, of pushing deep. But there's also breath prayers. And we've talked about the power of breath prayers in the midst of contemplation that can kind of ground us in one of those things. So I, I think in this definition period, my, my purpose here is maybe to ask a little bit more questions. You guys are like, well, Professor such and such said this one time. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, know who that is. So, so is, is there a difference between like having a contemplative stance towards um, theology, the Bible, whatever, and like an academic approach? Is, there, is, it, is contemplative more like, or is it? aimed at trying to find an answer and work everything out and get like, or is there a different aim there? Like what's, Mm. what would be the. Yeah, I would say so often, at least in my academic work, um, the aim was getting (laughs) to the answer. Like we talked about a little earlier, right. To, to have the experience of learning, but ultimately to come to a conclusion, right. Where I think the, the aim as Melissa was saying, when she said the the aim of the contemplative stance is being, I would say that the aim is union and connection to God, not a specific intellectual outcome, right? Mm. You will learn things along the way in the midst of this. Absolutely. But the goal is deep connection with God. I think for me, because um, sometimes getting tangible with things is, is helpful. Communion is a tangible embodiment of a contemplative stance for me because mm. the goal is union with God. I could theologize a thousand different ways as to how God is present and scripturally what it says about this and what the systematic theologians have said about X, Y, and Z and one, two, and three. But, but part of what we as Methodists have said is, meh, we know God is present and we trust that God is present and we're willing in this moment to fall into the mystery of how King's Hawaiian and grape juice connect us deeply to God because we've experienced that somehow that they do. Right. You know, yeah, because if I'm, you know, Joe off the street and I come in for communion and I don't know anything about communion, like, you know, what it what it is. But and all I have is, you know, the the liturgy before the communion, like I hear maybe the words spoken beforehand and me taking it like all I can really understand is the fact that I'm taking this thing that is meant for everyone and that that is kind of, if that's if that's at the root of it, then I feel like I do understand that contemplative stance of just if I don't even if I don't understand the unity and the impact on me individually of of why I'm taking communion, but I understand you know a billion things about the theology of it. Do I really understand communion, even if, if I can explain it to you, but I can't really feel the unity myself um, when I'm taking it? Mm. So I think I get it. I think there's a lot of space as well in the contemplative stance for provenient grace to still be present with us, even after God has like won us over. But just because like we have started on the path of like 
justification and sanctification doesn't mean that God has stopped chasing us in the midst of it. And so it's kind of this beautiful like meeting of these definitions of grace, like, right. So prevenient grace is the grace that comes before it's before, like, just like what you described in that kind of image Kiefer of Joe coming in off the street to communion. Like he doesn't know anything, but that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that the Holy spirit isn't present working in the midst of that. So the contemplative stance is kind of like that us not knowing and, but God knowing and God moving towards us with also us moving Mm -hmm. towards God, even if we don't quote unquote know in the academic or the like lay person, even just kind of stance. Yeah. It's more of a movement from knowing to knowing what you know, what you know, what you know, right? (laughs) The, uh, you know, it's like when you're dating somebody and the first time they tell you they love you, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. But in the same moment, when when your grandma gives you that look or, your, you know, that sort of lifetime of relationship, mm-hmm. it's like you know that you know that you know that you know that your grandma has got your back and your grandma is there for you. And your grandma has, a, you know, a completely rose-colored glasses view of who you are. But still, <laughs> the, they love you. And... And so, and you may ultimately get there with whoever you're dating in that time, right? But, but that kind of first, the, the depth of knowing and comes not through the head, but through the, the wholeness of it. Um, and, and so it's interesting when, as we seek to fall into the mystery, it feels like we probably shouldn't be spending a whole lot of time defining terms, but at the same time, I think it's helpful for us as we gather. Um, and as you might expect in the midst of this um, wrestling with with what is gospel and then where is sin and redemption in the midst of that as well, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think is indicative of a mystic approach and a contemplative stance, we said earlier that you know the contemplative stance is aimed at ever increasing ability to love God and love our neighbor, right? And, and as that happens, that helps us... Um, understand the the gospel a little more fully and by the gospel we mean like the compelling reason to share the good news of jesus yeah. right most contemplatives most mystics would say that the compelling reason to share the good news is ground in love instead of fear and in hope instead of judgment right mm-hmm. we share the gospel not to pass out get out of hell free cards but because as we have come to know that we know that we know that we know that love of god in a in a deep and profound way we can't help but want to to share that profoundly with the world yeah. um, because we've experienced a compassion of god that is deeper you know than the threat of god that we may have first encountered when the gospel was first presented to us right I think, and Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just say, and then if we take that mindset and then see how it's tied to mystic understandings of sin and wound. Yeah. It brings that to light even more. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, because I know that, like, I can specifically remember it from, I used to read these, like, and there's nothing wrong if you read these books, but like Christian fiction books. And I remember where reading these like the series of like you're talking about like the shack 
or Narnia or what? Oh, like, no, 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 no. Like, uh, not even more obscure than all three of those. Like, you got to go to, like, a Lifeway to get these books. Like, that's where (laughs) you got. I'd rather not. You you can't even go there anymore, I know. But anyways, but I read this, like, I read these horror books. And um, there was this, like, scene. And I can remember actually hearing, like, the speaker um, years later, and I was like, did he read the same set of books that I did? Um, like, paint this image of this, you know, man that's going to come out to throw you into the furnace in the basement, like, if you sinned and if you messed up. And it kind of became this, like, well, isn't that the God figure? In this book, like, you know, where and I think some of us, whether we have that vivid of like a man coming up out of the basement to grab you if you've sinned and you messed up to throw you into the pit of the fiery furnace to burn, you know, for all eternity. It, it was that on the nose. Like it was literally it was that on this the nose. guy is going to throw you into hell. Yes. Wow. And okay. I don't think the person who wrote it realized that, like, the person who's actively doing that by this theology would be God then, right? But I think so many of us get this um, in our subconscious. We can have that like angry man that's out to get you um, image. Waiting for and, you to mess up. Yes. And I wanted to like paint that picture just because how radically different the mystic stance on who God is and and how God acts towards us and the way God acts towards us is not from the waiting to get you stance, um, which really changes the definition of, I think, where you were going, Daniel, of sins and wounds, of how mm-hmm. we understand that is the mystic. I really love that idea of sin as wound just because... I think that the difference, I think there's this pervasive thought that, at least today, I hear it all the time, that sin is sort of this thing that's at our core. It's like the the foundation of what we are. Like, we're that mm-hmm. broken that all we ever were was broken, like, and sin yeah. is somehow yeah. a part of our core. But thinking about sin as a wound, as something that that harms me just as much as it harms the world, right? Like, I'm yeah. if I'm wounded, it's a thing that has happened to me, and it's a thing on the surface that might scar and you know might leave you know a a permanent kind of surface level you know appearance but it's not you know a part of at at the core i'm still something that was affected by sin and not exactly grown from sin it's not like the seed of me it's the it's just a weed yeah no i think you're so right because it it goes back to like we have to go back to that creation story the telling and genesis of understanding the image, the Imago Dei, the image of God, right. literal translation, image of God that we're created in, and the fall. That's the important next piece of it. And um, that's where the same, like, radically definite, different definitions of sin come out of that same moment. And the one in our pop culture theology is more of like, well, there was a sin rooted in us all along, or that the fall did damage us so far beyond repair. Whereas the mystic stance and the place where I firmly root myself is that when God looked at us, you know, God said, this is good. You know, let us create them in our image, right? Um, Adam, 
being a Hebrew word for humanity. So God's not just talking about Adam. God's talking about all of creation in this moment. And God looks at us and says, they're good. And I think the fall, there's there's a break that happens in the fall, but it cannot get rid of that goodness. And that mm. so that fall, that breaking point is where sin enters. Um, but sin enters in the mystic way in a different way. Yeah, it begins from that place of original blessing rather than original sin. And if we look scripturally, as you said, it, it before we get to the fall, we have this place of original blessing. Yeah. Um, and, and what the mystics invite us to do is to look at that that what is happening in the fall through a different lens. From the days uh, of Augustine on, Christianity has kind of zoomed in and put blinders on and said, we're only going to interpret this passage in one singular way, right? right? There's this one way of looking at it. And and the invitation from the mystic is to say, what is it like to be early humanity, to be yeah. Adam, to be Eve? And, you know, if you... If you think about it, the the serpent is manipulating. Mm-hmm. The serpent is spinning a nice story. The serpent is inviting them into a thing that invites them to be like God, and they know they love God, and so you know, and so the that they don't they're not free from culpability, but at the same time, yeah. there is coercive action outside of them. Yeah, that leads them to that place. And something I'd love to just like throw in real quick on this, because I know sometimes I'm even guilty of doing this is like, yeah, but if we've we've uh, translated it all together and agreed to translate it this one very specific way of how the fall you mentioned Augustine, who is the one who like highly influences how most of us think about that fall moment. Um, but it's like, well, we've all agreed on it and it's the oldest, but that's not actually true. Like the mystics views and the more expansive like ways to interpret and think through these are older than the one that our pop culture has clung onto. So sorry, I just wanted to like throw that in there because sometimes, you know, when we're reopening pe- our imaginations to other ways of interpreting. Sometimes it, it can give us a little heartburn, you know, it's like, but sure. this is comfortable. This is what I know. This is what I'm I'm good with. And my invitation that I want to say is like, these have been around. These are solid. We're not bringing you outskirt crazy stuff here. We're bringing you things that have been a beloved part of tradition. We just haven't been looking that direction at it for a really long time. And it's okay if it takes you time to consider and hold these spaces. You know, Daniel, you were talking about Adam and Eve and the and Elaine Heath, the woman who wrote this book that we were talking about earlier, um, the way she talks about it in that book and made me kind of come to terms with something that I had never maybe not didn't understand. Could, didn't. It's not that I didn't understand. It's just that I'd never thought about it before. And it's that we like to talk about Adam and Eve as if they made this evil choice, like yeah. they made a choice that was bad. They they knew right or wrong, and they chose bad. But she brings up the fact that, or at least that's how I've always kind of internalized that. And she brings up the fact that they don't, in the context of the story, there is no morality because God God has morality. God knows right from wrong. And Adam and Eve are simply, you know, living because they haven't eaten the fruit. So if you haven't eaten the fruit, like, 
You don't, they don't, there is no... They don't possess the knowledge to make the actively bad decision. They don't know that it, yeah, so, so that's, that is the, the piece of them that is obviously manipulated by the snake, which of course brings me right back around, I asked this question probably a million times when I was, I was like six years old, but like, why the heck was the snake there? God created that snake? It was like, (laughs) this has been the most (laughs) agonizing theological question of my entire life, probably. And we can talk about it later. But, you know, the fact that they were taken advantage of, and then she goes on to say God, and when she's talking about atonement, which I know we'll get into later, that God looks at them uh, with, what is it, pity, not blame. Like there's no, because they are not, they are blameless still in having made that initial decision because they, the way that God created them was to not, no, and so it's this thing that happened to them. They are they are not responsible for bringing sin onto themselves, and yet they are at the same time. So it's this whole, yeah. which yeah, if that's the, not human nature in a in a sentence, then I don't know what is. Cause yeah, it, it it's the wounds precede the sin. Yeah, but then the harm that comes from the wound kicks off a cycle. You know, we all heard it said a thousand times: hurt people, hurt people, mm-hmm. right? Um, that woundedness generates sin and sin is not known really outside of the pain that it causes. And so how do, cause I've had any, many a, of a question from young parents who have just had this baby born into their existence and born into their lives and they, they hold it in their hands. And, and it's in that moment that many of our young parents begin to question the historical doctrine of, of original sin. They go, you're telling me that this little baby that was yeah. just birthed and brought into life is a terrible, no good, very bad little sorry sucker? <laughs> I, their brains and their hearts and their minds can't fathom it, yeah. right? Yeah. But as we think of as that child grows and learns and, and is able to do more and more things, even between when they're born and they're 18 months old, right? The, the child goes through so much that is good and formative, but also they experience the pain of woundedness in humanity, right? They, they experience moments of hunger. They experience moments of, of being the victim of anger. They experience, I mean, no matter how idyllic their life, they experience things that wound, Mm -hmm. which then push them into a place of reacting to that wound. Um, yeah. I don't know that he's the first person to put this idea forward, but it's where I encountered the idea. But Rob Bell talks about, I think it's in the beginning of Velvet Elvis, maybe. Um, he talks about this idea that anytime he sees people debating Genesis, it's always a debate about, you know, or, or like anything in the Bible, really. There's often this debate of like, did this happen? Did this really, like, that's that's what the, you know, the two differing kind of worldviews or, or biblical views love to talk about is like, did this happen? Is this a metaphor or whatever? And he's like, no matter what you think of that spectrum, like if you, it's not about believing whether or not it happened. It's about knowing that it happens every day to us. Like Mm. the story of Adam and Eve is a reality for me every day. Like it's Mm -hmm. a, that is the cycle that you're talking about a cycle of a pattern that just kind of happens to us over and over again. And it's like, it's been happening to me since, since day one. And if I, I, I genuinely believe every human being should be able to relate to Adam and Eve rather than blame Adam and Eve. Like, so uh, that's my, that's my one thing about like, if you're, 
you know, so passionate that it, and again, it doesn't matter whether or not, I don't think, if you believe that it happened or it didn't, but if you're so passionate that, that it happened, it can kind of sometimes lead to this belief that it's all their fault, this doesn't ever happen, you know, that's when that, what I was talking about earlier, like we start blaming them and it's like, hold on, God, God doesn't yeah. even blame them. He can't, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's so who am I to, to blame my sin on these people from thousands of years ago? But so when you look at it, like it's this thing that happens, you learn a lot more from it. I think I've learned a lot more from looking at it that way. Like, how can I see myself in this story? But I don't know. Well, and as you, as you highlight for us, Kiefer, there's not a day that goes by where we're not impacted in some form or fashion by the hurt and harm and brokenness that exists around us, mm-hmm. right? And then we do our part unintentionally or intentionally sometimes, but hopefully unintentionally to expedite that cycle and have it keep going, right? How many times have, whether it was in school or at work or uh, in college or even within family, where you get your case jumped real bad by one person about something. And then six hours later, when you're with a completely different group of people, your patience level is a third of what it would normally be. Yeah. Right. And you're quick to jump somebody else's case because you're still, you have this unhealed wound that is sitting there that, that causes you to lash out. I mean, we see it with dogs, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. What kind of dog do you not want to mess with? A dog that's mm-hmm. eating or a dog that is hurt, right? Yeah. A cornered, hurt animal will lash out. It's oh. no no ifs, ands, or buts about it, right? There's, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I think we all want to say something about about that. Yeah, go for but, it. Uh, but yeah, there's a there's a show <laughs> uh, that I watched on Netflix about 16 times now that came out this year called Midnight Gospel, and they talk about that. They talk about um, literally this wounded dog metaphor of like sometimes people just get. It's like the older and older we get, we're in danger of becoming the wounded dog. We're in danger, like you know, if you get hurt, you start to. They, he was telling a story of like he knew this. There was this dog that showed up and he wanted to feed it and stuff and even as he's bringing food to the dog it's still growling and you know like it's 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 so afraid of people that it can't even recognize the difference between somebody who's trying to help it and somebody coming to harm it anymore mm-hmm. you know but and then food gets set down and the dog eats but it's like that's kind of what happens to us over time that's why i'm terrified of getting older so i don't want to become the the like wounded dog but i think it might be sad but true but i think at some level that happens to all of us over time yeah and i think like you know we've been talking about the adam and eve example i think one of the very powerful things about the mystic way is we we lifted it up a couple times of the blame of that when this becomes a wound that we carry we can no longer just place the blame on someone else thousands of years ago that you never met. Instead, you have to look internally at where those wounds play out in your own life and how you then are going to respond out of those wounds um, from your own sin, another way to put it. Yeah, but the invitation there, I think, especially from the mystic and contemplative stance, is, again, not to that place of, God looking to smite you and judge you, right? That impulse to self-reflection is not to feel terrible. No. Right? It's an invitation to name and acknowledge the truth so that you can then grow in your deeper connection 
to God, right? Towards yeah. an appreciation of, of God's profound love. As Melissa, you said earlier, yeah. right? As we seek God, God is still seeking us that for right. grace still at work, no matter how messed up or screwed up or yeah. harmed or harming we have become. Yeah, like the the movement of the mystic life and contemplative stance, the like ending point is Julian of Norwich, who's a famous mystic, would say is that all manner of things shall be well and all will be well. And I think that's the uh, that's the space that we're moving towards in mysticism. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Gather, Grow, Go podcast. I'm Pastor Daniel. I'm Pastor Melissa. And I'm just Kiefer. And I'm really enjoying this conversation. And I uh, and the book that we kind of have been reading for this has been just awesome. And I can't wait to uh, come back next week. Atonement. I've never liked that conversation, but we're coming back. And uh, we would love for you to continue listening and bring as many people as usual into this uh, conversation. And uh, as possible. And you can do that by liking or leaving a review, uh, depending on the platform you're listening on, uh, and also sharing it on Facebook or Instagram or wherever you socialize uh, on the internet these days. Um, and just help us out to bring more people into this conversation. And now that we have gathered together today, I want to give you an invitation to grow. Oh, on this day where we've been introduced to a contemplative approach to Christianity and the power of understanding sin as a function of wounds, I invite you today to, to spend some time, five minutes, maybe ten, reflecting on your life and those places where you have been hurt. Not so that you'll be stuck in the moment of pain, but that you might understand how it has come to impact you and then begin the process of being freed, freed from its harm. And now go, receive this benediction, this blessing that's meant to be lived out as you go this week. Go knowing that God is love, that God comes to you in your wounds with love, with pity, God comes to you knowing that all shall be well and all will be well. May you go in peace. Amen. Amen. Amen.